you might have heard the story uh, about at the end of the age, uh, God has all the men and women in heaven line up. And uh, he particularly says to the men, he says, men, I want you to get into two lines. The men who were strong leaders of their home, who were, you know, confident, who, 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 uh, who, who ran the household, who were the, the, the heads of their household, I want you to get into one line. The men who were dominated by their wives, who, who, who did everything their wives told them, I want you to get into another line. And he says to the women, you go on with St. Peter and I'll sort this out. And so the women leave and the men are there. And God looks down and the line of men who were dominated by their wives is huge. It stretches the whole way down the, 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 the streets of gold. The line of men who were bold and confident and ran their house and were the head of the home, there's only one man there. Uh, and God says, I am so disgusted. I can't believe that. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. I appointed you to be the heads of the household. You were disobedient. You haven't fulfilled your promise. There's only one man here who has done what I told him to do. We need to learn from him. And then God said to him, and he said, how come you ended up in this line? And the man sheepishly went, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> Who is in charge? That is what we are thinking about today as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Who is in charge around here? And that's what we ask a lot in life. That's what we're asking at the minute, isn't it, with Brexit? That, that dirty word that they're saying we should change it to, independence. That, that who is actually in charge? Because the whole Brexit thing is about, well, should the UK be in charge of their own laws or should some other body uh, in Europe be in charge? And obviously then we had the whole situation where we had a Prime Minister, Theresa May, who thought she was in charge, but nobody was actually voting for the things she was putting forward. And they say that if you're a leader and you look around and nobody's following you, you're just taking a walk. And, and that's what happened with Theresa May. And now we have Balshi bravado Boris storming in, said, I'm going to save the day. I'm going to take everyone out of the EU. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Isn't that his words? By October 31st. Well, we may find him in a ditch on October 31st. Uh, but he is, he's determined to do it. He said, I'm in charge. That is, until a Scottish court this week said, actually, you're not actually in charge. And he said, well, this week, the, the, the UK court will come back. The Supreme Court will say, I am in charge. And in the middle of this is the Queen who signed off on this thing. And people are saying, well, is she in charge? Is Boris in charge? Are the people in charge? Who's actually in charge of this whole fiasco, this whole mess? Who's in charge around here? That's what we ask at different times. You go into a restaurant and the food's horrible and your 14-year-old waiter really couldn't care less when you complain that you asked for your steak well done and there's blood running down the plate and you say to them, could you sort this out? And they don't do it. And you say, who's in charge around here? You go into a shop and you're not getting good service. And you're trying to get help. And Tracy Ann, who's supposed to be helping you, is texting her boyfriend Darren about what she's going to do on Saturday night. And you're asking, who's in charge around here? You see children running wild in your street. You see children running wild in your neighborhood and you're saying, who's in charge? Where's their parents? Who's in charge around here? We see storms and tsunamis and sickness and suffering in the earth. And we rightfully ask, who's in charge around here? Is God in charge? 
And we have to honestly ask, if God is in charge as we believe, then why are things such a mess? Why is there sickness and suffering and storms and tsunamis and all of this awful stuff that we watch in the news every night? If God is in charge, why is this happening? And that's what we're going to think about today as we go to the next bit of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And in the original, this is what they call the imperative tense. In other words, it's not so much a petition or a, you're asking God, it's more of a declaration. It's saying, kingdom come, will be done on earth. God, let it happen now. It's almost saying to God, God, just do it. Just kingdom come, will be done right now. Make things uh, happen right now down here. God, come and be in charge. Come and rule. Come and reign. God, come and be king here on earth. Come and let your will be done on earth. But then we have to ask the question again, don't we? Is God not already in charge? Is he not already king? And if he is, why is his will not being done? Who is in charge? around here and if God is in charge why are things such a mess and what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the start and we're going to see that God is the one who started it all Genesis 1 1 you know it well in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so God is the source God is the only uncreated one God existed before all things God is eternal God is the starting point of everything not a big bang unless God caused the big bang when he said let there be God is the original source of everything there was nothing before him there was nothing besides him God had no beginning he has no end God is God there is no rival he exists in perfect unity and community as father son and holy spirit we call it the trinity he needs nothing He needs no one. He is God. He is undisputed and he's unfathomable. We can't understand him, but he is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, From everlasting to everlasting you are God. So God is the source and the creator of all things. And God said, let there be and there was. So everything that we see And everything that we don't see, the invisible spiritual realm that we talked about last week, everything came from God. He is the source. He is the origin. He is the only uncreated one. He is eternal. Look at what it says in Colossians 1 and Revelation 4. That for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So whatever you see and whatever you don't see, he created it. He is the source. He is the origin. Revelation 4, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So I think it's very, very clear that everything was created by God. He is the origin. He is the uncreated one. He is eternal. But at some stage between Genesis 1, where God said, it is good, and Genesis 2, where he creates Adam and Eve, 
something started to go wrong. Because when we talk about God creating the invisible world, in that invisible world were angelic beings. There were angels. There were these, these spiritual beings. And, and some theologians would say that, 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 that the, the fall of, of angels happened when they got wind that God was going to create man and woman in his image. Because the angels weren't created in the image of God. And they got wind that God was going to create these, these humans, this man and this woman in his image and his likeness. And there was one particular angel who really wasn't happy and his name was Lucifer. And we read about him in Isaiah 14. I don't have time to read it now. But he wanted to be God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And so he rebelled and a third of the angels rebelled with him. And he got kicked out of heaven. He got ejected from heaven. And then we have the creation of male and female in the image and likeness of God. And God is still completely in charge. But here's what God says. God says to Adam and he says to Eve, I'm putting you in charge of earth. And God takes the keys and he says, folks, you're in charge. I'm delegating authority here on earth to you. We read about that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, if you'd put that up, Mal. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And we all have figured out how to do that. And then he said, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, have dominion. I give you rulership over the earth. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God says to Adam and Eve, I am giving you the keys. I'm giving you authority. You're made in my image and in my likeness. And I want you to bring everything as you multiply and and, and increase and take over the earth. I want you to bring everything under submission to me. And we read about this in Psalm 115, verse 16. It says this. It says that uh, before the mount, or, yeah, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. That he has actually handed it to us and said, you are now in charge. You have authority here from me. I was told recently, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. I was told recently about a, a pastor I know in, in Scotland, he, he was leading a big church in Scotland. And uh, it was a mutual friend was telling me this. I was asking, where is he living? Because he has just gone through some transition recently. And, and they said, actually, a number of years ago, an American businessman bought a huge, beautiful property just outside Edinburgh. And he gave it to my friend. And he said to him, for as long as you live, this is your house. I own it. But I'm giving it to you. He gave him the keys. He said, for as long as you live, this is your house. And they've signed the paperwork so he can't come along and just throw him out. He says, you're in charge of this house until the day that you die. I'm giving you complete authority over this house. 
It's not a perfect analogy, but it expresses something of what happened with earth. Because the Bible says in, in, in Psalm 24, we read it at the start, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, he created it, he owns it. But then we've just read that he gives authority over it to human beings. He gives us dominion to look after it on his behalf. So where did it all go wrong? Well, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent comes along and whispers, Psst, Psst, you see that tree over there? Yeah, we're not meant to eat from that. I know. I know, but God is withholding something good from you. And if you eat that, you'll be like God. And here's the thing. They were already like God. He was offering them something that they already had. Isn't that what happens sometimes? The enemy tries to convince us that God is withholding something good from us. And he tries to make us chase something that God has already made available to us. And we look for it in all the wrong places. And Adam and Eve fell for it. And they submitted to the devil. They listened to his voice. They came into agreement with him. And the Bible says that those uh, that, that, that when you sin, you become a slave to sin. So here's what Adam and Eve essentially did. They took the keys of authority and dominion that God had given them, and they handed them to Satan. All of the authority that God had given Adam and Eve, all of the dominion over earth, they handed it to Satan. And then things started going down. Hell. It would be like my friend in Scotland who's got this beautiful house given to him, inviting the crystal meth dealers in to start running the place. You know, it'd be like Breaking Bad or something like that. That, that, that it would just become this drug deal. Like that's basically what happened. They were given this wonderful gift, this wonderful authority, and yet they squandered it. And that's what we call the fall. But God is still God. He's absolutely sovereign. The earth still belongs to him. His delegated authority that he has given to humans has been usurped. Satan has a free reign within God-given parameters to cause chaos. God, however, always has a plan. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. Humans were given authority by God. They sinned. They rebelled against God. They gave it to Satan. So two things needed to happen. First one was this, God is completely holy and just and therefore humans needed to be punished and that was death and that was eternity separated from God. Because humans had rebelled against God, their creator, he is perfectly holy, they are now unholy, they can't stand in his presence, they deserve to be separated from him not just in this life but also in death. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing that needed to be done was this, that the relationship needed to be restored in some way but it had to be restored by a person. A human had to restore the relationship. And God longed for it to be restored because not only is he completely holy and just, he's absolutely loving. He adored us and he wanted us to be part of his family. So he began his plan and he starts a new family. He calls this guy called Abraham from Earth the Chaldeans and his wife Sarah And they're old, but they have a boy, and that boy's name is Isaac. And that boy, Isaac, has a son called Jacob. And Jacob has a bunch of sons, but one of them is called Joseph. 
And Joseph ends up in Egypt and gets promoted to prime minister and saves them from famine and the whole family moved down there and all of Israel, all, all of God's people moved there and, for, and things are going well until a, a pharaoh rises up who knows nothing about Joseph and he puts him under slavery for 400 years but God sends a deliverer called Moses and Moses comes and says let my people go. He brings the people out and he's bringing them through the desert into a promised land, a land where God wants his people to dwell and show his glory a land through which he will bring the deliverer. But God's people rebel against him. They say, we want a king. And God says, I am your king. And they say, but we want a a king like the other nations. We want a human king. And God says, do you really? And they say, yes. And the first king they get is Saul and that doesn't work out. And then they get David and he does pretty good. He's as good a king as they've ever got. And they enter and they have this monarchy and, and things are going well. But after that, it starts to go downhill. And Solomon comes next and he makes some unwise decisions. And then after that, God's people start to rebel against him. And they start to follow these other gods like Baal that you read about. And we start to see that God's people increasingly turn their backs on Yahweh, the true and living God. And so God says, I need to send you into exile. I need to show you your dependence on me. And so first of all, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and eventually the Romans take over. And God's people begin to cry out to him and the prophets begin to speak. And they begin to speak about a deliverer. They begin to speak about one who's going to come, one who's going to set them free, one who's going to liberate them. And the prophets begin to speak about this one and he's kind of like a man but he's not a man he's a man but he's divine he's one like a son of man as Daniel said and they began to cry out and they began to pray and they began to long for this Messiah they called him this deliverer and people would come along and they would think it was him but it wasn't him and then we get to the last book of of the Old Testament the book of Malachi and then God went silent and for 400 years not a peep We flick over one page in the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. But we don't realize that one page represents 400 years of silence from God. And then one day, a teenage girl called Mary, bless her, she's getting ready for the big day. She's marrying a guy called Joe, a real decent guy. He's a carpenter. And she's getting ready and she's excited and she's picked out her dress and she's got the, the venue ready and it's all coming together until an angel shows up and says, Mary, I have something to tell you. And she says, what is it? And the angel says, you're pregnant. And she says, how can this be? I think she probably said something a little bit more than that at the time. But that was a good thing to ask. How can this be? Because I've done GCSE geography and I know I haven't been with a man. How can this be? And the angel says, it's not going to be from a man. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you will give birth to a son. And this son will be human because he will come from you, but he will also be divine because he will come from the Holy Spirit. And this baby is born and he just looks like every other baby. And he has to go through dirty nappies and potty training and learning how to talk and pimples as a teenager. And he doesn't look that different and he makes things. He's a carpenter. And then at 30, he begins to preach. And the people around him are amazed because he really just looked like an ordinary bloke. And he begins to preach about this thing called the kingdom of God. 
And he comes along and he says, repent, Mark chapter 1. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for God's kingdom is coming close. It's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when we talk about the kingdom, here's what we mean. The king's domain, the king's dominion. That the the rule and reign of God is at hand. With the coming of Jesus, God broke into human history. With With the coming of Jesus, the reign of God entered earth. It had arrived. And then Jesus kept talking about this kingdom. And he used all sorts of, he says it's like a mustard seed. Or it's like yeast. It doesn't look like a big deal, but it grows and it expands. And it makes a huge difference. He says it divides people just as a a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. So the kingdom will divide those who are part of it and those who aren't. He says it's precious. It's so valuable. It's like a a precious pearl. It's like a, a treasure hidden in a field that you would sell everything to get. It's like a wedding. Some people who are invited don't come. And those who who weren't meant to be invited do come. And there's signs of the kingdom. How will we know the kingdom is among us? Well, there's going to be signs. The blind eyes are going to be open. The deaf ears are going to be here. There's are going to hear. There's going to be healing. There's going to be people who couldn't walk are going to walk. It's going to start looking a little bit like heaven on earth. That the people who are are possessed by demons are going to be set free. And that's exactly what happened. And news about Jesus begins to spread. As more and more things happen, people are getting excited. Could this be the one? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the promised one? And there's this buzz and it comes to a climax. It comes to a frenzy on on on, on the Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and they're waving palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna, which means save now. In other words, Messiah, do your stuff. Set us free from Roman oppression. Set us free from the tyranny of these people. Come and lead a rebellion. Come and lead a revolution. Come and kick some Roman rear end. And, and get us free from here. Come, Jesus, and, 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 and do the thing that we want you to do. But they got it wrong. They misunderstood his kingdom. See, they thought it was a military kingdom, a physical kingdom, a political kingdom. And we do the same today, don't we? We think if we can just get enough politicians saved, then everything will be all right. If we can just align ourselves with the president or the prime minister or the MLS, then everything will be all right. Or we think, you know, if we can just defeat the, 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 these Islamic terrorists by force, then God's kingdom will come. And God would say, no, you've got my kingdom wrong. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And it's not just there to free people from one group of oppressors. It is there to free people from the greatest oppressor, which is sin and Satan and death and hell, and restore you back to a right relationship with God. And when the crowd that would shout it, Hosanna, realized that Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted, they quickly turned on him. And within five days, they were shouting, crucify him. They'd gone from Hosanna to crucify him. And on that Friday, the Passover Friday, where the Jews celebrated their deliverance from Egypt on a hillside outside Jerusalem, that Jesus was hung on a cross and his blood was shed. 
and it looked like Satan had won. Hell celebrated that day. Satan had a, had a party because he was still in control and it looked like Jesus had been defeated because even the demons knew who Jesus was. And so for a few moments, as Jesus breathed his last and said, it is finished, all of hell celebrated. But what hell didn't realize, that that wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a declaration of victory. And something happened. Just as they were celebrating in the pits of hell, something happened in the darkest, deepest recesses of Hades. There was a shaking. There was a rumbling. The demons quaked as a voice with great authority said, I think I'll take the keys back. Thank you very much. And all of hell looked around and they couldn't believe it because they thought they had defeated him. And he looked at them and he said, actually, I have conquered you and I have come to take back what is rightfully mine and I'm taking it back and I'm not going to be here very long. And on the Sunday morning, he rose from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, death and hell. Why? Because he had fulfilled both of the requirements. What were the requirements? There had to be a penalty for sin. The penalty was death. Jesus died. But he was sinless. But he took every sin. He took our punishment. He took our penalty. The sins of all humanity, past, present and future, were poured on him. He came as a man because only a man could get back what a man had lost. That's why they call him the second Adam in the Bible. The first Adam failed, the second Adam didn't. He came and he restored all that had been rightfully taken away. And he said, I have never sinned. You have no power over me. And therefore, I cannot be controlled by death. Because death is the consequence of sin. And I have never sinned. And therefore, death has no hold on me. And on that Sunday morning, the sinless Son of God rose from the grave and conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell. And 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of God. But before he did that, you know what he did? He called his people together. He called the church together. And we read this in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Here's the keys back. The keys that you lost back in Eden, here they are, church. Here they are, people, sons and daughters of God. Here they are. Go into all the earth. That was the original mandate. Go into all the earth and subdue it. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to do everything I've commanded you. Church, here are the keys back. And one day the Bible makes clear he's coming back in glory and judgment to rid the world of sin and evil once and for all. Revelation eleven fifteen says that one day the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. You see, Satan has been defeated through Jesus' death and resurrection, but one day he will be completely destroyed. He was defeated, but he will be destroyed. And in the meantime, you and I live in the in-between. We live in the tension of the in-between. When Jesus went back, he gave us authority, but we live in the in-between where we are called to go and expand his kingdom into Satan's territory. 
Because even though he's been defeated, the structures and systems of this world are still under his power. That's what we read. Put up Ephesians 2.2, please, for me, Mal. Ephesians 2.2 says this. Paul calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He also calls him the God of this age. He says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So even though Jesus is Lord, even though God rules and reigns over all creation, the the systems and structures of this world are still under the power of Satan and he doesn't want to give them up easily. He's like a squatter who knows his days are numbered, but he's not going to let go easily. And that's why Jesus taught us to Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' kingdom was inaugurated. When Jesus comes back, his kingdom will be consummated. But in between, he has given us the keys. And he has said, I am giving you authority to bring my kingdom. I am giving you authority to have my will done on earth. And your prayers will make a difference. And your lives will make a difference. And how you treat people will make a difference. And how you love and how you serve and how you sacrifice and how you give will make a difference to what happens here on earth. It's not through force. It's not through politics. It's not through violence. It's through love. It's through service. It's through humility. It's through prayer, it's through deliverance, it's through holy living, it's through justice, it's through caring for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the broken. And prayer is the key. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is the primary means that God has given us to bring heaven to earth. And we have no idea how powerful prayer is. Most Christians have no clue. The devil has far more of an idea how powerful prayer is than most Christians. We we just think it's going through through the motions, getting our time up with God every day so that we can earn brownie points with heaven. And we do not realize the explosive power, the keys that God has given us when we pray. When we pray, heaven comes. When we pray, his kingdom comes. Darkness flees, flees, demon flee, and people are set free when we pray. When we pray, things happen that wouldn't happen. When we don't pray, things don't happen that should happen. The enemy is terrified of the people of God praying. That's why prayer is so hard. Have you ever wondered how you can almost do anything apart from pray? It is so hard. It's the most distracting, difficult thing. Why? Because the enemy will do anything to stop you praying because he knows if you would really grasp what you've got in your hands, your life would be different. Your workplace would be different. Your school would be different. Your street would be different. Your family would be different. If you could only grasp what you have, things would be different. And so he will do anything to stop God's people praying. He will do anything. I have friends who were planting a church in Dublin a number of years ago when we were there. And these were, these were fairly conservative evangelicals. They didn't really believe in the supernatural. They didn't really believe in a lot of this sort of stuff. And I remember talking to them and we, would, we, we helped them out. We gave them our sound desk and different things to get them started. And, and I said, how's things going to one of the guys, Mark, one day? And he said, Craig, this, this is really weird. He says, we went into our new building that we're planting our church in to have a prayer meeting. And the second we started praying, the doorbell started ringing and didn't stop. All right? I should really do a better doorbell sound. I'll practice that. And he said, we went down, we stopped praying, we went down to the front door and there was nobody there and we thought it was kids and we came back up and we started praying again. 
It's a better one. Not slightly better. Okay, doorbell starts ringing. Stop praying again. They go down. Third time it happens, they go down. There's nobody there. They look at the doorbell. The wires are hanging out the back of it. It's not even attached to anything. There's no power going to the doorbell. The enemy would do anything to stop God's people praying. We have no idea the power that God has given us when we pray. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth and it is in heaven. That is not just a, a rote prayer that we've learned since our, we've been kids. We are actually praying that our relationships on earth would look like heaven. That our health on earth would look like heaven. That, that the, the culture that we have in work on earth would represent heaven. But before it begins out there, it's got to begin with me and it's got to begin with you. See, it's one thing to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what about your kingdom come, your will be done in here? You see, here's what I have found in my own life. That when God's will and my will are the same, I have no problem obeying it. But when God wants something I don't want or when I want something he doesn't want, that's when I struggle. Like a number of years ago, I was asked to conduct a wedding in Florence, Italy. I knew that was God's will. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's some things you don't need to pray about. Like that, like that was straight from heaven, you know? See, if God were to ask me to go to Ethiopia for a, as a missionary for a month, he would need to send 20 troops of angels river dancing on the duvet every morning for a month. Just being honest, because I don't want to do that. You know, when God asks me to tithe, I can do that. I, I can tithe. If God were to say, I want you to double your tithe for the next three months, oh God, seriously, I'm, I'm not so sure that's your will. Get thee behind me, Satan. When God asks me to forgive that person who hurt me so deeply a number of years ago, I go, God, but. I just want you to, just if you zap them first, I'll, you know, I just don't want to see that you've dealt with them first. And God says, just forgive them. Just forgive them. You see, it's really easy to pray that prayer when it's out there, but what happens when it's in here? Because if he's not Lord in here, he's not going to be Lord around me. And there's only one throne in my heart and there's not two seats on it. There's only one seat and he's either on it or I'm on it. And normally, or very often, can I be really honest, it's my will be done, not thy will be done. And yet I have to, if I'm praying this prayer, get to the place where I go, God, I don't want to do this. You remember Jesus in the garden? Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. That's where we have to get to. His agenda has to take precedence over mine. If he's in charge of my life, what I want has got to be what matters most to him. And yet the enemy is still around and he's trying to pull me in the other direction. He's trying to lure me. He's trying to entice me. He's trying to dazzle me and dangle things in front of me. Saying, yeah, but I, I know God wants you to do that, but look at this. Look how beautiful. This will set you free. This will bring you joy. This will bring just, just a little bit. Just give in to a little bit. 
and it's always this battle between my will and his will be done. But when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we remember who is really in charge, then we will start to orient our lives so that our lives are in line with what he wants. So yes, I have seen God's kingdom come as I finish. I have seen God's kingdom come. I have seen sinners saved. The chief of worst, of, of, of the chief of all was me. I've seen drug addicts set free. I've seen bodies healed. I've seen cancer healed. I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. I've seen scars on people's stomachs from self-harming disappear like that. I've seen legs grow before my eyes. One leg shorter than the other. A number of times I've seen it and it freaked me out. I've seen marriages that were hopeless restored. I've seen sex offenders transformed. Most of you don't know this. For five years I was a chaplain of a sex offender prison in Dublin. One of the darkest places you will ever go into. Within a few years we had 15% of that prison doing alpha. And we saw lives transformed radically by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've seen arrogant businessmen humbled. I've seen the kingdom come. But I've also seen lives destroyed by drugs and pornography and sin. I've seen friends ruin their marriages through affairs and I've seen families torn apart. I've officiated the funeral of an 11-month-old baby boy. I've been with a missionary as he walked down the street, a 50-year-old missionary from America who was here to serve Jesus and he was on his way to organise a charity concert and he dropped dead with a heart attack in the street leaving his wife and family behind and I've been there and I've held his hand in those last moments. I've had close friends in the last year die of cancer, friends who are younger than I am, leaving a wife and three kids. I've I've known people who have killed themselves through the hopelessness and helplessness that they feel. So I've seen the kingdom come, and yet I've seen the other side, and we live in this tension. We live in this tension of the now and the not yet, of the kingdom has come, It is coming and it will come. But in the meantime, what do we do? We pray. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we don't just pray, but we live it. We love, we serve, we give, we sacrifice, we forgive, we embrace And we live this. And as we do that, all those horrible things that I talked about, some of those will still happen. But God's kingdom will break in. And lives will be healed. And marriages will be restored. And broken bodies will be put back together. And broken hearts will be healed. And and we will see his kingdom come. This is not just a prayer. This is a declaration and an invitation for God to come and break in and do what only God can do. Let me finish with a story. It's a story I may have told before, but as I was at a preaching conference yesterday and the preacher said this, he says, we worry about telling the same stories over and over again. He says Adele sings the same songs every concert and nobody worries about it. York City. And there are churches known 
worldwide for their prayer meetings and for their emphasis on prayer. Let me just read it. Pastor Jim began by sharing a time of great struggle within his family. He says this, All my talking about prayer faced a severe test several years ago when Carol, my wife, and I went through the darkest two and a half year tunnel we could ever imagine. Our oldest daughter, Chrissy, had been a model child growing up. But at around 16, she started to stray. Chrissy not only drew away from us, but she drew away from God. In time, she even left our home. I tried everything. I begged, I pleaded, I scolded, I argued. I tried to control her with money. Nothing worked. She just hardened her heart more and more towards us. Her boyfriend at the time was everything we did not want for our child. Then he says, one cold Tuesday night during our prayer meeting, I talked from Acts 4 about the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution. And we entered into a time of prayer and everybody was calling out to God simultaneously. But in the middle of it, an usher came and handed me a note. A young woman in our congregation who was spiritually sensitive said this, Pastor Jim, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and pray for your daughter. I hesitated. Was it right to change the flow of the service and focus on my personal need? Pastor Jim then shares how the note prompted him to finally speak publicly for the first time about his struggles with Chrissy. And he describes how the sanctuary and the church filled up with the groans of prayer, reminiscent of a labor ward, as people poured out their hearts to God. His story continues 32 hours later. I was shaving when Carol burst through the door, her eyes wide. Go downstairs, she blurted. Chrissy's here. I wiped off the shaven foam and headed down the stairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. She grabbed my trouser leg and began pouring out her anguish. My vision was as clouded by tears as hers was. I pulled her up from the floor and I held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back. Daddy, she said with a start. Daddy, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like a cross-examining lawyer. On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? When her father didn't respond to her question, she continued, in the middle of the night, God woke me up and he showed me I was heading towards an abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard my heart has been, how wrong I've been, how rebellious I've been. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding further and further as he said over and over again, I still love you. I still love you. Just months later, Chrissy enrolled at Bible College. She now lives in the Midwest with her husband, who's a pastor, and their three children. And Pastor Jim ends the story with the following comment. Through all this, Carl and I learned as, ever, as never before that persistent calling upon the Lord breaks through every stronghold of the devil for nothing is impossible with God. Amen.